0: We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Film Show. Today is Thursday, September 7th, 2023. On today's episode, we are going to gather around the virtual water cooler and talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor, BJ Colangelo.
1: Hi, 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 yeah
0: bj how's it going what have you been doing recently
1: this is huge news for anyone who's known me at any point in my life but i think i've successfully quit biting my nails
0: okay so i've been biting my nails since i was a kid and i'm still doing it so how did you manage to pull this off
1: so I don't know if this is going to necessarily work for you. This is going to depend on your comfortability level. But a big reason why I have been a nail biter is one, I'm just a very anxious and nervous person. But also I was a competitive baton twirler for, you know, over two decades of my life, which meant I couldn't have long nails. Um, so I got really into nail art and like having nice polished nails um, and had them look nice. And so then that kept me from biting them because I didn't want to ruin the work that I did. And now they're at a length that I can just have a, a regular color, just, you know, all of them black or all of them pink or whatever I decide to do. And it's been keeping me from biting them. Um, They are at a length right now where I keep feeling the urge to do it. But now that they're long enough, I can get that anxious energy out in other ways by like I don't know like scratching or tapping my nails. Um so I don't know maybe if you want to put like a clear coat on it or if you want to get adventurous and you want to start putting, you know, color on your fingernails, it has kept me from biting them.
0: <laughs> uh I'll be real BJ, I don't think I'm going to do that, but I appreciate the uh the <laughs> guidance anyway and hopefully that will help a lot of our listeners who may be going through the same thing. I remember one time actually I think this happened multiple times, which is even more embarrassing. Uh when I was a kid, my mom hated the idea that I was biting my nails all the time and she put this clear coat something that was like designed specifically to taste terribly like it it, it was designed as a deterrent for kids to stop biting their nails. And I just like kept doing it anyway. <laughs> um, so she eventually just sort of threw up her hands and gave up and was like, all right, fine, whatever. Do what you're going to do. My um, little
1: sister had to have something similarly because she was a chronic thumb sucker. And so they try to do that for kids to like stop biting your nails, stop sucking your thumb. Here's just gross stuff we're going to put on your
0: hands. <laughs> uh Yeah, I probably shouldn't have told that story in a podcast where we have a lot of listeners eh, you're anyway. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Let's get into well, – what we've been reading. I just started a really great book that I'm not going to talk about yet, but I'm, I'm like, I don't know, about halfway through it. And I'm so excited to talk about it already. It's like becoming one of my favorite books as I'm reading it, which I love in real time as that happens. Uh, but what have you been reading recently?
1: All right. So this is something I'm very excited about because I actually got to be sort of a part of it coming to life, which is very cool. Uh, but I when I'm not editing and writing at Slash Film, I do also do a little bit of screenwriting and script doctoring. And my writing mentor is Seth M. Sherwood, who listeners might know as one of the screenwriters for the movie Hellfest, um, or the show Light as a Feather on Hulu. A um, couple other really cool things: the the Leatherface prequel, which Seth has been very open online about how you know a lot of things change from script to screen with that one. <laughs> um, but uh, as the WGA is on strike right now, uh, Seth decided, oh, I got to." do something because I'm not making any money because I'm on strike so he made a book called the scary movie writer's guide and it is a book for aspiring screenwriters but specifically people who want to work in horror and so for the last couple of months I've been kind of being a guinea pig to make sure that it works because it's not just a book on horror screenwriting it's also a guidebook with like worksheets and and little prompts to kind of like get your creative juices flowing so you know you'll get a page where it's explaining like the different types of subgenres that exist and why they exist and what fears they evoke and then the next page it'll have like a a thing you can fill out that's like okay so your biggest childhood fear has manifested in your closet what do you do now? And it's a way to kind of get you to think about the ways that you know horror films are structured and how characters respond to things Um, and it's over a hundred pages it's really cool because it's both horror history, as well as the art of writing a horror screenplay, which can be very different. Um, There are a lot of great screenwriting books out there, but horror kind of operates under its own rules, so this is specifically for horror screenwriting. Mm -hmm. And it went on sale yesterday. I think scarywriter.com is the website for people to order it. Um, But it is really nice to have a book about screenwriting and it specifically be for horror people, where it's not trying to get you to think about, like, the fancy auteur way of approaching film. It's like, no, if you want to make a slasher movie or if you want to make a ghost story, here's how you do it.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, very cool. I mean, yeah, so to be fair, I mean, as you laid out at the top, this isn't exactly like a... uh <laughs> a, um, a recommendation that you can make without, uh, like you have a, a somewhat of a personal stake in this because you know, this person, right. he's your mentor. Um, <laughs> so you're not like completely, uh, objective is the word I was looking for. Um, but still, yeah, th- I mean, that's like, sounds like an awesome resource, especially for people who, uh, are into the horror scene. And I, I love the idea of like anything that helps break down, um, components like that into like, okay, here's this thing, here's this trope, here's this uh, thing that you've seen a million times why does this work so well? Like, what what yeah. on the sort of like fundamental level are we doing here when we tell stories like this? So yeah, that sounds like a cool way to uh, to go about it.
1: Definitely, and like you, you're totally right. Like this is you know something where you know I've <laughs> I it was a lot of like running by of like, do I sound stupid by saying this? Like, am I gonna <laughs> am I am I correct in my horror knowledge with this? Um, so you know that is some that is input that I had on it. But what I appreciate so much about this book, and I think this is something that anybody who's a horror fan gets frustrated by is whenever horror is talked about, like, generally in screenwriting books or, you know, film analysis books, they tend to look at it as, like, one genre and not, like, the hundreds of subgenres and how they all have different rules and they all have different structure and you know, it, it's just nice to have a book finally acknowledge that. I feel I feel like it's very validating for yeah. <laughs> people who, who want to write about horror.
0: Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. So that's called The Scary Movie Writer's Guide by Seth yeah. M. Sherwood. Excellent. Uh, all right, let's get into what we've been watching. What have you been watching recently, BJ?
1: All right. So it's weird stuff. Uh, the first one is that I watched Barry Levinson's Diner for the first time. I've never um, seen this it so this is one of those things where have have you ever looked at like a poster or a a description of a movie and you're like how the hell have i never seen this oh yeah um that's what this movie was for me so directed by barry levinson obviously he's done a a ton of things um it's from 1982 but it is set in the 50s and listen to this cast you're gonna like lose your mind uh kevin bacon uh young mickey rourke steve gutenberg Paul Reiser, Tim Daly, and a very young and weirdly handsome Daniel Stern. Uh, This is kind of his breakthrough role, as well as uh, Ellen Barkins also here. Um, This cast, that was what kind of threw me and I was like, what is this? Um, I also learned that this is the first um, (laughs) major uh, American movie to have the old uh, popcorn and lower pants region trick in a movie. Oh, Um, wow. (laughs) This is kind of the movie. uh, The first instance of it is in like a French comedy movie, but like, Barry Levinson brought it to America through this movie. But it is uh it's very like American graffiti in its energy and that it's very nostalgic. But it's about a, a group of friends that are coming back in town because Steve Gutenberg is their buddy and he's getting married, so they're all in town for this wedding, and they frequently hang out at this diner and they just have like conversations about life. And it's uh very much an assessment of kind of like masculine relationships in the 50s and how a lot of them are in these relationships they don't want to be in because. It's the 50s. So, you know, you hit a certain age and you got to get married because that's just what you do. And about them trying to deal with that and how, you know, that's not necessarily where they wish their life would have been. So it's kind of a hangout movie, but at the same time, like it's just very well written and it's a lot of just really great actors talking.
0: <laughs> so you like this then, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, I really, really liked it. And the performances are all really fantastic and the characters are all uh very much like sure of themselves. Um, they're all pretty big personalities which I like um, but I, yeah, I have no idea how this one just went beyond my radar for so many years and I'm glad that I finally got to watch it.
0: I remember hearing that this had a great cast. I didn't realize the extent of it until you just laid out all those names there. Um, in my mind, this has been this movie came out in 1982 and it especially from the description that you just uh, that you just gave me, it sounds kind of like, Um, like a '90s indie movie that was made a decade earlier—is that right? Is that the the feel that it it has? It
1: it feels like a like a spiritual like parent of like Noah Baumbach's, like kicking and screaming. Like it feels a lot like that. Of it's just group of people that are you know coming of age, but it's not teenage coming of age. It's like quarter life crisis coming of age and just kind of existing in the world and these are just this is their life this is this is who these people are this is how they interact with each other this is what how their past has brought them to this place this is hopefully where they're going to go for the future um but it's just like a week of their lives it's like christmas to new years like that's their life that's what we're watching
0: very cool all right so diner you can rent that for i think it's 299 at youtube and apple and amazon and all the usual suspects there if you want to check that out it's not streaming anywhere as of right this second but yeah cheap cheap rental if you want to check that out um what else have you been watching DJ?
1: um so i am one of the few people that actually quite enjoyed the merging of hbo max and discovery Uh, i hate that it's called max but i like that merger because that means I now have access to investigation discovery. And there are a few shows on there that fall under the umbrella of what I like to call ethical true crime, which is that it doesn't feel exploitative. A lot of the accounts that are being discussed are firsthand. And one of them is a show called Mother May I Murder. And it is specifically about uh, children who have committed crimes, usually murder, uh, because their mothers told them to.
0: Wow, and
1: dark. it it's very dark. Um, and in some of the cases, it's you know you're hearing from the family and the friends of the people who knew them and discuss you know how these relationships came to be. Um, and then in a couple instances, it's the actual children who killed on behalf of their mothers, um, talking about what that was like. And it is so tragic and and. St- Dark, but it is also very fascinating to look at the ways that familial bonds can be manipulated and taken advantage of and uh i just i have fallen down like i <laughs> i fell down a tiktok rabbit hole of like boy moms and mother boys and like <laughs> the, like these weird relationships and dynamics and how they affect people's families because i came from a very like chill supportive wonderful family so i don't have like experience with like messed up families Mm -hmm. Uh, so i'm endlessly fascinated by them um and i ended up watching one episode and just got sucked in and now I'm caught up and like eagerly awaiting the next week's episode.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah. I was gonna ask like, is this a is this a weekly show? Um, yeah, it's
1: a weekly show. You can watch it on Max and it like some of the episodes are really dark. Um so keep that in mind. And some of them go in really twisted places that you you hear the title and you're like, oh I hope it doesn't go that way. Some of them do. Some of them do go that <laughs> far and it's not great. Um but a lot of it is just about the power dynamic of, you know, parental abuse and how children will do kind of anything to appease their parents and it's just wild it's wild stuff
0: okay so that's called mother may i murder uh what else have you been watching
1: And the last thing I wanted to talk about is that I finally got to watch one of my all-time favorite movies in the theater. I got to see Scream. I also got to introduce it um, as kind of the kickoff to spooky season at Vidiot. So I got to introduce Scream to an audience. And the thing that blew my mind is that I do the intro and I was like, by a show of hands, who here has never seen Scream? And there was a lot of people who had never seen Scream before. And then I was like, okay. Second question, how many people have never seen it on the big screen? And it was like, I would say probably three, like three fourths of the crowd had never seen on the big screen. And seeing Scream on the big screen was kind of a religious experience because I love that movie so much. And seeing it play huge was awesome. But the thing that I was most fascinated by was watching a lot of like Zoomers and like these really young people watching this movie for the very first time and being completely enamored by it. Like the writing still hits, the jokes still land. Um they obviously all kind of call who's responsible from the beginning because it's way more obvious now because we've sort of trained a culture to look for red flags in bad relationships. Um they were delighted by Sydney uh using the computer to call 911 because they're like that's not a thing that exists. <laughs> but you know, we thought it was possible. It's fine. Um, but, oh God, it was so good. And that opening scene is still so relentlessly mean as it ever was. And it was just great. I, I highly recommend, I know people are like, I've seen this movie 10 million times. There's something different about seeing it on the big screen. It just, it it changes you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Amazing. All right. Well, if you don't have access to seeing it on the big screen and you want to, uh, yeah, just revisit that movie in the lead-up to, as you say, spooky season. Uh, Scream, the original, is streaming on Paramount Plus right now, if you want to check that out. Um, all right, let's take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. All right, BJ, the one thing, the first thing that I wanted to talk about is a movie called One Way Passage from 1932. Have you ever heard of this by any chance?
1: I've not seen this one. This is a Kay Francis movie, isn't it?
0: It is, and William okay. Powell, who's like quickly becoming one of my favorite uh, old-school actors, um, the premise uh, i'll read the the imdb synopsis a terminally ill woman and a debonair murderer facing execution meet and fall in love on a trans-pacific crossing each without knowing the other's secret um so really really cool concept uh this movie actually won an academy award for best story back when that was a category that they were doing back in, in the early 30s um but yeah this is like it's a, it's a pretty breezy movie. It's 68 minutes long. Gotta love that. Uh, and it's just, yeah, a, a fun, um, uh, like really, uh, it's a romance that's tinged with melancholy because you know that there's no way that this is really going to work out for, for these people. So like doomed romances, there's something about that, uh, as a genre that I always gravitate toward and really appreciate. Um, and this is like one of the earlier, um, like uh, Hollywood explorations of that topic that I can remember. I'm sure there were plenty of silent films that, that uh, dig into this that I have not seen yet or anything, but, um, but yeah, early thirties, uh, you know, one of my favorite actors working in a, in a genre and, and that I really appreciate. I mean, it sort of hit, checked all the boxes for me. So, um, one way passage, I would recommend checking that out. It's streaming on the criterion channel if you want to check that out. Um, I also had a chance to watch *The Three Musketeers* from 1948. I'd never seen this version before. I grew up watching the 1993 Disney movie with, uh, uh what was it Chris O'Donnell and um, mm-hmm. Kiefer Sutherland and Oliver Platt and Charlie Sheen? I really enjoy that movie. So, like the story of *The Three Musketeers* was, um, which is a novel by Alexander Dumas that I've I've never actually read. But that story has been ingrained in my brain since childhood. Um, And I've seen a a couple different adaptations of it. But this one was pretty close to the the Disney uh, incarnation. But um, it stars Gene Kelly as Mm D'Artagnan. So uh, have you seen this version before?
1: I've seen this one because Vincent Price and Angela Lansbury are also in this. And that, of course, was like a big sell for me when I was like a budding cinephile of like, oh, Vincent Price is here. Now I have to watch it. Yeah. Vincent Um, Price
0: plays. um, (laughs) He plays Richelieu and uh, yeah, who who is like the the Tim Curry, uh, role in the, the Disney one he's like the villain of the piece and Angela Lansbury plays Queen Anne. She has a pretty Mm -hmm. small role, but Vincent Price does get to chew the scenery and, and be, you know, he, he's just delightful (laughs) to to watch. He's just so tall and gangly and just kind of feels out of place in a wonderful way. Um, but yeah, so I, I saw that this movie starred Gene Kelly, who is obviously known for his, song and dance man yeah (laughs) you know his (laughs) his uh singing in the rain um that that whole vibe and i was like oh interesting a musical version of the three musketeers this movie is not a musical at all it just cast gene (laughs) kelly as like a straight ahead uh protagonist in this movie and i don't think i've ever seen a gene kelly performance where he doesn't break out into song and or dance at one point um so I, i don't know how uh i certainly have not gone through his entire filmography yet uh but i don't know how common that was for him and i was just kind of it kind of like took me aback watching this like oh okay this is a a choice i guess it was just like a normal casting decision then instead of like building the movie around his particular talents um but in a way his dance skills and his uh you know his choreography and all of that um Makes sense for, for him in this part, because there's some really cool sword fight stuff that happens here. And obviously sword choreography and fight choreography is very much tied into the world of dance and memorization and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, watching him move his body in, in that kind of dance like way, but just with a sword in his hand is, uh, is really thrilling. I I really appreciate it. Especially there's this one, moment where this one big, I would call it like the, the big action scene of the movie, which is probably, I don't know, around the halfway mark or so. Um, I, I was very impressed with the sword play going on in, in this movie, especially for the forties. And like, I know they made a ton of uh swashbuckling epics and stuff with Errol Flynn and all, all of that kind of thing. That was like that period. And, and that was like the height of those movies. And they certainly don't make movies like that very much anymore. They were making a ton of them back then, but even for, that period I was impressed by what they were able to do with the choreography and you know, he's leaping all over the place and using uh, different um, uh, obstacles in his environment and and all of that. It reminded me a little bit of like Jackie Chan and stuff. So I'm sure Chan probably took some inspiration from, I know he was heavily in- influenced by like people like uh, Buster Keaton, but I wouldn't be surprised if he watched projects like this and sort of took that and, and put his own spin on them. So uh, yeah, if you're looking for just like an interesting uh, adaptation of the three miscateers with a gorgeous cast. I mean, Lana Turner is also in this too. Um, and, uh, Van Heflin and yeah, uh, Lansbury price. I mean, it's got a bunch of great people in it. Uh, check out this version of the three miscateers, which I think you can rent again for like $3. Uh, it's not streaming anywhere right now. Do you have any, any other memories of of this movie, BJ? Do you like, how would you rank this among the adaptations of the three Musketeers that you've seen?
1: Um, I think the Disney one will always outrank it just because there's nostalgia, because that was my first one. But uh, so when I was in college, my degree was in theater, and I did take like broadsword and fight choreography. Nice. Uh, sort of classes. And uh, the uh, amazing DC Wright, uh, he's a. You know, renowned like stage combat uh, instructor. Uh, this was one of the movies that he like heavily recommended to all of us. He's like, "No, you gotta watch it. Like, it the, the the choreography is masterful." And he's absolutely right. It's really wonderful, and it does kind of show the the marriage of having somebody light, like you were saying, like Gene Kelly, who is such a master in in footwork, being able to do the swashbuckling kind of thing, and like it's just so effortless and beautiful um, yeah. <laughs> how he executes everything. <laughs>
0: (laughs) Uh, Okay, so that is The Three Musketeers from 1948. I also watched a movie called The Last Seduction, which came out in 1994, and it stars Linda Fiorentino and Peter Berg, the director, who went on to make things like Battleship and and, uh, Lone Survivor and a bunch of different movies, Um, and Bill Pullman. Uh, John Dahl directed this, who was sort of known for his his neo-noirs from the 90s. And uh, this one, I I heard about this movie on um, Karina Longworth's uh, You Must Remember This podcast, And decided that I I wanted to check it out. It's also streaming on the Criterion uh, channel right now. I think it's also on Tubi, if you care about that. If if that's in your rotation, Pluto TV, it's also there too, if you want to watch with ads. Um, But uh, yeah, I was very impressed by this. It's, It's sort of like a down and dirty, nasty little movie. Like Linda Fiorentino plays... Um, okay. So the basic premise of this is that, uh, I'll read again, the IMDb synopsis, a devious sex pot steals her husband's drug money and hides out in a small town where she meets the perfect dupe for her next scheme. Um, which is just, yeah, uh, a really fun, uh, noir concept that you've probably seen a bunch of times, but, um, but Bill Pullman plays against type in this movie. He's like a true asshole, which is really surprising because he's <laughs> always like, you know, the, the aw shucks good guy kind of thing in movies. But in the opening scene, he slaps Linda Fiorentino's character, or maybe it's more of a, like a backhand across the face, like he really knocks her around a little bit. And so she just immediately takes all this drug money that they had stolen together to build. Their life and sort of go to the next level. And she just like walks out on him. And the whole movie is about him trying to find her across the country and her setting up shop in the small town. And Peter Berg's character is this like uh, small town loser basically who aspires to live a big city life. And she rolls into his life like a whirlwind and they just have sex all the time throughout this movie. And she is just playing him like a fiddle the whole time. And uh there become like this, this murder scheme starts to slowly develop uh over the course of the movie. And he's like trying to be the moral center. And she is just like this, uh this force of nature character who is just like, does whatever she wants and, um you know, has sex with whoever she wants. And just like it, it especially for that time, it just feels like, the type of female role that you don't see or, or didn't see very often. You see a little you see it a little bit more now. Um, but this, this sort of, to me felt like, uh, I don't know, like not quite ground zero because there were movies like that, you know, Barbara Stanwyck played roles like this all the time. But mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. for the, for the nineties, for that sort of indie era that we were re- referencing earlier, this kind of feels like one of the, the big um, uh, tent poles of that period. And, and Fiorentino's performance is just like, so Uh, it's like undeniable. She's just like so incredible in this. You're you're mesmerized by her the whole time. Um, Have you ever seen this by any chance?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, 90s erotic thrillers are like one of my favorite things in the world. And this movie gets so much credit because, OK, so like you said, <laughs> Bill Pullman is such a jerk in this movie. This is his weird heel turn in between While You Were Sleeping and Sleepless in Seattle. Wow. Like, <laughs> This is a movie he did in between, which is so wild to me. Uh, but the character of Bridget Gregory in this movie, which is Linda Florentino's character, is such like just the like the pinnacle of horrible like when you see the meme of like I support women's rights, but I also support women's wrongs, this is what I'm talking about, <laughs> like she's so captivating this movie, and she's the worst person on the planet, and I'm obsessed with her,
0: yeah, yeah, that's a really good way of putting it, yeah, it's it's a really fun movie and and yeah, it has like a real sort of nasty streak to it, um, mm-hmm. and I don't want to give away what happens at the end, but uh I was surprised and like kind of pumping my fist a little bit at the end too, even though that that makes me a bad person. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those movies that like makes you root for the character, despite all of the terrible things that they're doing. And like, uh, yeah, you're just sort of like on their side, like, yeah, get away with it. Go for it. Like, yeah, try, try to do all this stuff. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, Yeah, a lot of fun. So that's called The Last Seduction. Uh, And then over the Labor Day weekend, my wife and I watched all three Godfather movies. Um,
1: Ah, the films of my people.
0: Yes, exactly. Uh, And I'm glad that you're on this episode to to talk about this. So uh, we watched The Godfather together. um, I don't know, it's been a few years at this point. And then she had never seen the second movie. I'd seen that one before. And then neither of us had seen the third movie. So we were like, all right, long weekend let's do it uh you know these movies are like three hours long or whatever so like <laughs> now we have some time let's let's knock this out let's do this um my i don't know if this is controversial because i know that the godfather and the godfather part two are both seen as like some of the greatest movies ever made i feel like the first one is far and away the movie of this trilogy like i, I appreciate the second movie there are definitely aspects of it that i really like i think. um De Niro as young Vito, all of those flashback scenes work really, really well. Um, but the, to me, The Godfather is about the, um, the turn, the the arc of Michael Corleone as a character. This 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 guy who starts as this sort of, um, you know, clean cut boy scout type of figure who is lured lured into this uh this underworld and like against his will almost, but because of the the pull of family, becomes this this person that he never wanted to be. And that arc is tracked so wonderfully in the first Godfather movie. And then in subsequent movies, it's, you know, he's already there. Like the arc has kind of already been completed. So it's not as dramatic and it's not as um, you know, that the the uh narrative um completion is not is not uh, as as uh, potent, I guess, Um, for me anyway. So uh, I don't know, what what do you think about like the trilogy as a whole, BJ? Like, is, is there a clear standout to you?
1: I think the clear standout depends on which character that you find most interesting. Because if you are a Michael, then it's one. If you're a Vito, then it's two. And like that, to me, like it it it, it just kind of says like what like what are you looking for? So for me, like I love Vito. Like I am very much into the idea of learning about the psychology of this man. So for me, Godfather Two is always the one that I gravitate towards. But I think that the Godfather is like the first one is a perfect film because of what we learned with michael and just like that's all we need um godfather 3 i appreciate that it's here um i don't revisit the godfather 3 really ever mm-hmm. um it's just not a film that i look into if i'm going to rewatch like what's also weird is like even though godfather 2 i would say is my favorite i tend to re-watch the godfather more than i rewatch the godfather 2 but i think it's also because like that's the movie that my dad and I bond over because my dad mm-hmm. is a godfather guy and I'm a godfather Two guy. So like that's <laughs> how that works. Um, these movies are just, they're just masterful to me. Like they're what, what is there to say about these movies that hasn't been said 10,000 times by 10,000 yeah. different people? Um, I just, oh, I can't believe you watched all three of them in a weekend. Like that's such a commitment. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. We we're going to do them three days in a row. And then we, we actually like, watch the first two back to back and then, you know, on, on, uh, subsequent days and then, um, and then took a day off and then watched the other one like on, on one day smart. or whatever. <laughs> um, but interestingly, I, so I, I don't know, I haven't, um, done like a deep dive into the differences here, but we actually watched on Paramount plus is how we watched all of these. And the third, uh, part is now called The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone, which is like a a different version of the movie than the theatrical version of part three. I couldn't find the theatrical version of part three streaming easily anywhere. So we just watched this recut version and I had always heard from my entire life that the Godfather part three is terrible. It's not worth watching. It's a garbage movie. It like sours you on the entire trilogy. It's an embarrassment, whatever. And so I was going in expecting this just to be like a true piece of shit. And it was not, I was, I was surprised with how much I appreciated a lot of it and, and really like was actively into a lot of it too. There's um, Joe Mantegna plays this character named Joey Zaza, who is this uh, again, like a, a clean cut villain type of character who um is like the the main villain for the first half of the movie and i was totally into the first half of the film which is like michael um trying to run this legitimate business and and uh his young i think it's his nephew is played by andy garcia who is this hothead uh you know up and coming aspiration you know he he like wants to he wants desperately to be in Michael's orbit and Michael sort of takes him under his wing and uh, is trying to teach him the ways of the world. And there's this, this tension between this Zoe, Joey Zasa figure who wants to come in and sort of upend the the, uh, the hierarchical na- nature of the, the mafia in New York city. And so I, I liked all of that. And then the movie transitions to Italy for the back half and it gets involved with like, Michael's son being an opera singer and like assassinations and uh there's like the the Pope gets involved and like all of that kind of stuff <laughs> I wasn't as into. Um but yeah, I, I was definitely like vibing with this movie pretty hard for the first hour or so so uh for anybody who's never seen this who have just you know like me had written it off or had heard such terrible things that it's not even worth watching i would say it's definitely worth watching there's there's some good stuff in here and also just a quick shout out to sophia coppola who i think has gotten you know a metric ton of crap for her performance in this movie and uh, over the years like that's another legendary thing that i'd heard about this was that she is just so abysmal as as mary as michael's daughter and mm-hmm. I didn't think she was that bad in this movie, so Here's, I don't know.
1: She, she's not that bad in this new cut. Like, the, I, I'm sad that part three, like original part three, is not easy to find because, and like at the same time, I'm actually kind of glad that it's not, um, because the the coda one, it's it's the new edit. It's you know, I think the movie that Coppola wanted to make the first time, but for whatever reason, didn't, or maybe it's just like he learned from feedback what worked and what didn't work and then fixed it because of it like he doesn't take her part out in the new edit she's still there but because the movie is edited in a way that like the pacing is a lot quicker in, in the first half of this movie. Mm. So you're not like bogged down so much. I think the original part three, like you are already kind of like, Oh my God, please let's just get the story going. (laughs) So then because of that, you're already a little bit annoyed. So then her performance feels worse because it's, you're already in like a negative headspace when you aren't in that negative headspace. It's like, it's, it's nowhere near as bad as people make it out to be. But then at the same time, She's up against these, like, acting gods in this movie. So, of course, she's going to, like, appear way worse than she actually is just because she's amongst some of the best actors that have ever worked.
0: Yeah, Um, yeah. There's some some real heavyweight stuff going on here in the acting category. And she is not really like an actress by, by trade, you know, she's obviously become like uh, a signature
1: director. (laughs) Yeah.
0: One of the signature directors of her generation. Um, and so I'm glad that she found, you know, the, the better place where most of her her talents lie or whatever, but, uh, but yeah, I just wanted to give her a a quick shout out because I didn't think in in this cut, as you said, I I didn't think she deserved all the, the hatred that I think she's gotten over the years. So, um, yeah, anyway, th- those three Godfather movies are streaming on Paramount+. Plus. If you want to check that out. And then uh, let's talk a little bit about what you've been eating, BJ. It is it is fall uh, as, we, as we transition into September here. Um, so I'm guessing that this means that there are a bunch of new options that you've been diving into.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, pumpkin spice season is back in action. That is of course going to be at the forefront of everything any sort of snack cake that is shaped like a bat or a ghost or a pumpkin I'm buying it like (laughs) it's my favorite time of the year um but also the the other fall flavors that start coming up we're starting to get more sweet potato flavors which I'm a big fan of we're starting to get more apple and apple cider um I am an Aldi queen I shop at Aldi uh, pretty much exclusively for my groceries. So uh, the apple chips are back in in season, which is basically just like slices of apple that have been fried and turned into chips. I'm a <laughs> big fan of that. But my absolute favorite thing is uh, in our house we call it corn flavored corn um it is sweet corn flavored popcorn comes back in the fall and i think Trader Joe's also sells a form of this but it is i, I can't explain it because it's just popcorn but it tastes like you're eating sweet corn so it's corn flavored corn and you can only get it in the fall and it is so ungodly good that i have to like pace myself where i will eat like a whole family size bag in one sitting and regret nothing <laughs>
0: Wow. Yeah, I've never heard of that. I've, I've never had it, never heard of it, but uh sounds delightful.
1: <laughs> it's so good. And like you'll eat it and you're like, why did I ever eat any other form of popcorn? What have I been doing?
0: <laughs> okay. So uh, what have you been playing? Let's round this thing out.
1: Alrighty. So I have been playing Homebody. This was released, I think, earlier this summer. Um, and I haven't really gotten around to it. It's an indie game. So you can get it on like Steam or any of those sorts of like indie games gaming platforms um it's from the the game grumps crew um which i think i've talked about them on the podcast before i watched their youtube quite a bit um but they produced this game and it is a puzzle survival horror game um that feels very evocative of like late 90s playstation games so the same way that like I would say probably the last five years we've been getting a lot of these like throwback games that are like eight bit and 16 bit. Um, this is a throwback to late nineties PlayStation games, So it's very like polygonal. Um, it feels very much like early, early silent Hill games as far as like the puzzle mechanisms are concerned. Um, but it's a time loop horror game and it is fascinating because it you know channels a lot of those like nostalgia feels for me being a kid playing horror games which it takes a lot for me to play horror games because uh i get a little too into them and then like i get physically ill from the adrenaline uh rushing in my body <laughs> wow. so so i have to be very careful like resident evil games will like screw- actually screw me up whereas like this like there's a little bit of a distance and because it's poly like polygonal i feel a little bit safer um but the thing that has been really getting me is that uh, the, the character that you're playing as, her name is Emily, um, she's agoraphobic. And like the whole plot is that you and your friends are going to like this rented cabin to watch like the meteor shower and you really, really, really don't want to go. And it's not because you don't like your friends. It's because like you've become very isolated and agoraphobic. So like being around people in general is really hard. Um, so this game that is doubling as like survival horror puzzle game, very 90s, is also taking a very like 2023 approach to like feelings of anxiety and uh like obsessive compulsive behavior and agoraphobia and fear and you know how sometimes disappointing your friends can feel as dangerous as like being stalked by a killer wow that's really cool like i'm very obsessed with it and (laughs) um i've been having a great time playing with it playing it because the game mechanisms are like it's it's pretty user-friendly the puzzles are not super impossible some of them are really hard like one of them is straight up like playing minesweeper a game i never actually learned how to play even though it came (laughs) stock on every desktop i owned as a kid so like that sucks because i'm really bad at minesweeper (laughs) um but the the real draw for me is the story. Like it's really fantastically written and compelling and you really feel for this character. And so, you know, you're trapped in this time loop and you learn more with every, you know, loop that comes around to the story. And it's heartbreaking and wonderful and scary all at the same time. Uh, so definitely recommend it, especially if you're somebody with an affinity for that time period of gaming and these sorts of stories.
0: So that's called Homebody. I have one question before we go about the time loop aspect of it. Do you move forward uh, in time until you're killed, and then you go back to the beginning? Is it like a, a happy yep. death day type of situation? Yep, you okay. die a lot.
1: You die a lot, and you kind of have you have to die in order for the game to keep going, um, which you know feels like the end like the antithesis of what gaming is where like, oh, it's a survival game, but you literally have to die in order to get the story.
0: Interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah. That sounds really fun. What, what uh, platform are you playing this on?
1: Oh, just on my computer. I downloaded it on steam.
0: Okay. Awesome. All right. So that's called, that's called Homebody. Check that out. And that's going to do it for today's episode. You can find more about a lot of the stuff that we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com and linked inside the show notes for this episode. The Slash Film Show is published two times a week, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you could find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you all next week.